came off of Thanksgiving and I have all kinds of things to be thankful for. But Steve, I'm thankful that 32 years ago, when I asked her, she said yes. So, uh, yeah, no, nobody can figure that one out, can they, Steve? So, well, it's kind of, it's weird how God works. There's a little girl in Corning, Arkansas, and an old guy in Lubbock, Texas, and somehow or another God brought the two of us together in Moore, Oklahoma, and now we're in Fort Smith. So, isn't that great? That's a, I don't know how good it is for you, but it's great for me, man. So, uh, glad about that. Well, today we're going to end our study from John chapter 3. In fact, for seven Sundays now, we've been preaching through the third chapter of the book of John. I've entitled this series, One-on-One with Jesus. And today we're going to end with a sermon on the reality of heaven and hell. Lenny Bruce was a Hollywood star and a comedian. Once he gave his philosophy on life, and it went something like this. He said, look, you've only got about 65 years to live. Before you're 20, you can't really enjoy anything because you really don't know what's going on. And after you're 50, you can't enjoy it either because you don't have the physical energy. I'm not going to debate that right now, all right? I'll just say what he said. So his conclusion was, so you've only got about 25 years to party. And in those 25 years, I'm going to party. Well, he died of an overdose of morphine at age 40. And somebody said 25 years of partying was more than his 40-year-old body could take. And so it is. I really think, though, in a sense, Lenny Bruce was looking for the same thing Nicodemus was looking for in John chapter 3 and the same thing that all of us are searching for, and that is fulfillment in life. By now, you've gotten to know Nicodemus pretty good. Uh, We've been standing under the stars listening to his nocturnal conversation with Jesus for the past seven weeks. Perhaps we've admired Nicodemus most for his honesty. Despite his advanced age and his great prestige, he was willing to admit that his life was empty. And so he came to hear what Jesus had to say. Jesus began the conversation by telling him of the new birth. In fact, Jesus said to Nicodemus, You must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he explained the terms of the new birth with an Old Testament illustration. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he spoke the most famous words in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And today we come to the climax of Christ's words. And they really are some of the most somber words that Jesus ever spoke. We read them in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that 
as I try to speak on the outside, you would speak on the inside of every soul that is here today. Help us to understand the great sacrifice that heaven made in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand, dear Lord, today that without Jesus in our heart, we have no hope for tomorrow or for eternity. Without Jesus, we stand condemned before God. But dear Lord, help us to hear the good news today that with Jesus Christ in our heart, there is no more condemnation. That we can be saved and set free. Speak that word of truth today and we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to look at these two verses, 17 and 18 of John chapter 3 today. And the first thing that I see is what I'm calling the compassion of our Savior. Notice that Jesus said in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Nicodemus and all of the Jews believe that the Messiah would come to condemn the world and the heathen nations. They expected Him, when He came, to elevate and exalt the nation of Israel. They thought that He would judge the world and glorify the Jews. But what they didn't realize is that the Messiah would come twice. While His second coming will be as judge, His first coming was as Savior to provide a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus said, My Father did not send Me into the world to condemn the world. He sent Me to save the world. And that brings us to really the theme of John chapter 3 and trying to answer that question again. Why does the world need to be saved through Jesus Christ? Well, it's because we all have the same problem. We all have a sinful virus that is coursing through our bloodstream. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches all we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible declares there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, I know how much y'all love to hear Brother Johnny when he comes in here and preaches, but Brother Johnny's not here today. He's in Indiana uh, doing the funeral of his, uh, of his pastor when he was growing up as a boy. And so you pray for Brother Johnny. But for those who, do, who don't know, Brother Johnny's our children's pastor, and he loves to give uh, illustrations, all right? So here's my lame attempt for an object lesson today, all right? I know you like these. Here, here is a, a glass jar of pure, undefiled, Fort Smith tap water, all right? That's what's in here. Doesn't that look great? How many of y'all are really thirsty? Huh? I ate too much dressing on Thursday. It made me real... Here, here I go. Oh. Hmm. Man. That was good. Pure Fort Smith water. Here's my object lesson. I have something else up here. It's a little foot. Salt shaker. You know what I'm going to do. Here I go. Here, here it goes. Yeah. Just a little bit of salt. You know what I've done? I've defiled this pure Fort Smith water. Now it's salty. If I, if I took a swig of that, I'd spit it out. You know? All it's good for now is gargling, gurgling. Trying to soothe the sore throat. You know? Here's my point. In the Garden of Eden, Satan poured evil 
into our bloodstream. And in a moment, every drop of human blood became sinful. Sin infected every person who would ever be born. We all have this sinful nature inside of us. I try to illustrate it like this. That's the reason you don't have to teach little kids to be bad. You know, they just come by naturally. What we have to do is teach them how to be good. Exactly. St. Augustine was one of the early church fathers. He was born in 354. He illustrated this truth about our impulse to sin with an incident from his youth. Late one night, Augustine and some of his teenage friends went to a neighbor's house and they shook down his pear tree. That means that they took all of the pears off the tree. Now they didn't eat any of the pears. In fact, they took the pears and they fed them to the swine. Later, Augustine wrote and said that he didn't need the pears, nor did he want the pears. The only reason he stole the pears was because it was evil. And he loved it. Some scholars who read Augustine can't understand why he makes so much of the pear tree episode in his writings. Because you see, before his conversion, he committed many sins which are far worse than stealing pears. He had a mistress. He fathered a child out of wedlock. He indulged in every passionate pleasure that he could think of. But in the pear incident, Augustine had a clear example of his true nature and the true nature of all of us. He had stolen those pears for no other reason than to satisfy his drive towards sinning. He sinned for the sake of sinning. He was a sinner by nature. And the Bible teaches we're all sinners by nature. Sin is in our bloodstream. And like any terrible disease that is in your bloodstream, sin leads to a slow but certain death. It is a terminal disease. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. It really is a simple case of substitution. We are all sinners and our sin leads to death. But Jesus died on the cross in our place, substituting Himself for us, taking our punishment upon His body and shedding His blood to take away our sins. And that brings us to our second truth. That is the condition of salvation. What is the condition of salvation? I can say it in one word. It's faith. It's faith. Verse 18a says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. I mean, that's the great news. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Again, that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus over and over in John chapter 3. He's saying it to you today. What it takes is for you to believe. You must believe in the only begotten Son of God. And if you believe in Him, you are no longer under condemnation. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Hey, how many of y'all like the ocean? Like going to the... Okay, let me see. Put your hands up. How many of you would rather be in the mountains than in the, at the ocean? Okay, a few, there's a few of us. We've got a divided house, you know. It's not just the Texas-Arkansas house. It's, it's a mountain-ocean house, you know. I'd rather go to the, the, the mountains and the rest of my family would rather go to the ocean. So when we go on vacation, guess where we go? Yeah. But I do like the ocean. I really do. It's, it, it, it is amazing, isn't it? How many of you have ever swam in the ocean? You ever been out in the ocean swimming? That's, that's something. Yeah. Pretty cool. You ever felt the undertow? Man, that's powerful, isn't it? They have all these warning signs on, on public beaches down in Florida where we go about riptide. You get caught in a riptide. Here's what you're supposed to do. Because you know what? They'll, they'll suck you out into the ocean. Can you imagine being out in the ocean and, and you get sucked into one of those riptides and you're overcome by the swirling current of the sea? It grabs you against your will. It's pulling you down. You're thrashing in the water trying, trying to get out and you're panicking and all of a sudden a lifeguard sees you. And they jump into the water in these broad, long strokes. They swim out to you. What does the lifeguard say? He says, settle down. Be still. Hold on. Let me do the work. I'll save you. Just trust me. Really, the only way you can possibly be saved is to stop trying to save yourself. You just trust the lifeguard. And when you entrust your life to the lifeguard, He's going to pull you out and save you. Literally, you are saved by faith because you've trusted the lifeguard. And again, here's the point. Some of you are here this morning and you're thrashing around in the sea of sinfulness and you need to be saved today. You can be saved by grace through faith alone. But to do that, you must trust the divine lifeguard. Stop trying to save yourself. Because the Bible says, whoever believes on Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But I want you to read on the last half of verse 18 because we have a very terrifying portrait painted in verse 18b. It's the condemnation of the sinner. Because that verse goes on to say, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And church, I'm going to talk real serious to you for the next few minutes. We can't understand this concept of condemnation without thinking of it in terms of hell. Because that's what it's talking about. And that verse tells me you really don't have to do anything to go to hell. Because you're already under condemnation. In fact, the entire world is condemned to hell. In a recent survey by Newsweek magazine, 77% of the respondents said they believe in heaven. Only 58% said they believed in hell. And only 31% said that hell was a literal, physical place. I can tell you this, we we don't like to talk about hell. You don't like to hear me preach on hell. And you certainly don't like to be told you're going there. When the famous European theologian Karl Barth lectured in the United States in 
1963, a professor at Fuller Seminary asked him, Do you believe in hell? The Swiss theologian replied, No, I don't believe in hell. I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, Karl Barth didn't seem to realize that the most explicit words in Scripture about hell were spoken by Jesus Christ. And one of his most common descriptive words about hell was darkness. In fact, look at verses 19 through 21 in John chapter 3. Jesus said, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. You see, the Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness. God is light. We know that. And to be separated from God means to dwell in darkness. Jesus referred to this numerous times in His teachings in the Gospel especially in the book of Matthew. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, he talked about all of those who will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In chapter 22, he talked about the wicked, saying, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In chapter 25, Jesus said, Throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Colossians 3.1 it says that we are saved from the domain of darkness. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 warned that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness. Thirteen verses later, he warned the false teachers of the same judgment, saying that the blackness, blackest darkness was reserved for them. And then in Jude verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. And in Jude verse 13, he warns the unsaved, that the blackest darkness has been reserved for them. Hell is horrible. And I'm going to tell you, I know people don't like to be told they're going to hell. In fact, my first church I ever pastored was in Fort Worth, Texas. I was a young seminary student. The church was small. When I first went there, we had maybe eight people in attendance, and through the years it kind of grew a little bit. But I, I was so excited when this new couple started coming to our church. They, they were a young couple, just married, about to have a baby. They both had great jobs, made a lot of money, and they were giving money to the church. And boy, that made me happy after that little church. You know, great people. They seemed to be really nice. I was young and dumb, didn't know any better. So one Sunday morning, I opened the Bible, and I tell you what, I preached on hell. Woo! I told them they were sinners and without Jesus they were going to hell. I didn't care who they were. If they didn't know Jesus, they were going to split hell wide open. At the end of the service, the lady 
husband came out. She was the talker. She, I, I told the first service people she shook my hand, but thinking back on it, that was a long time ago, thinking back, she didn't shake my hand. She was mad as a hornet. She said, do you really believe that? It's kind of taken back. I said, well, yes, ma'am, it's in the Bible. She says, well, I don't believe in hell, and I'm not going to go to a church that talks about it. We won't be back. Well, I'm sorry, but it's there. It's there. And you need to be told about it. I thought of a story in the first service at the end of the message when I finished preaching. A story about this uh, Baptist deacon who lived next door to a Methodist guy. And, and uh Baptist church fired their pastor. Fired him. The Methodist neighbor asked the Baptist deacon, why'd y'all fire your pastor? Baptist thought about it for a second and said, well, he kept telling us we were sinners and we were going to hell. We kind of got tired of hearing that same old message, so we fired him. A few weeks later, the Baptist church called the new pastor and after a few more weeks, the Methodist neighbor asked the Baptist deacon again, well, what do you think about your new preacher? Oh, we love him. Great preacher, great man of God. Well, well, what does he preach? The Methodist asked. Baptist thought about it for a second and said, hmm, well, he tells us we're sinners and we're going to hell. <laughs> Methodist kind of shook his head and said, well, what's the difference? You, know, you fired the last guy who did that. Baptist said, well, you know, when that first preacher told us that, he sounded like he was happy about it. But when this new preacher tells us, he says it like it's breaking his heart. Some years ago, John Thomas wrote an article on hell that appeared in Moody Monthly. It's a, it's a rather long article, but I want to read an excerpt of that article because, you know, we, we need to be reminded of what hell is like. Maybe it's been a while since you've even thought about hell, but what, what is hell really like? Here's what he wrote. Hell is a place of darkness. Imagine the person who has just entered hell. Maybe a neighbor, a relative, a co-worker, a friend. After a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth. But after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain. Not that it's become tolerable, but that his capacity for it has enlarged to comprehend it, yet not be consumed by it. Though he hurts, he is now able to think. And he instinctively looks about him. But as he looks, he only sees blackness. In his past life, he learned that if he looked long enough, a glow of light somewhere would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and strains to focus his eyes, but his effort only yield blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits, but he sees nothing but unyielding black ink. And it clings to him, smothering and oppressing him. Realizing that the darkness is not going to give way, he nervously begins to feel for something solid to get his bearings. He reaches for walls or rocks or trees or chairs. He stretches his legs to fill the ground. But he touches nothing. 
Hell is a bottomless pit. However, the new occupant is slow to learn. In growing panic, he kicks his feet and waves his arms. He stretches and he lunges, but he finds nothing. After more feverish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in black. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks and twists and lunges until again, too exhausted to move. And so he hangs there, alone with his pain, unable to touch a single object or see a solitary thing. And then he begins to weep. His sobs choke through the darkness. Then they become weak and lost in hell's roar. As time passes, he begins to think. His first thoughts are of hope. You see, he still thinks as he did on earth, where he kept himself alive with hope. When things get bad, he always found a way out. If he felt pain, he took medicine. If he were hungry, he ate food. If he lost love, there was also more love to be found. And so he cast about in his mind for a plan to apply the hope that is building in his chest. Of course, he thinks, Jesus, the God of love, He can get me out of this mess. And so he cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you are right. Help me. Get me out of here. He waits, breathing hard with desperation. But his voice slips into the darkness and is lost. He tries again, Jesus, I believe, I, I believe you. Save me. Again, the darkness smothers his words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes. When he wearies of appeals, he does next what anyone would do. He assesses his situation and attempts to adapt. But then it hits him. This is forever. Jesus made that very clear. In fact, He used the same words for forever to describe both heaven and hell. Forever, He thinks. And His mind labors through the darkness until He aches. Forever, He whispers. The ideal deepens and widens and towers over Him. The awful truth spreads before Him like endless, overlapping slats. When I put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will have accomplished nothing. I will not have one second less to spend. Church, let me tell you, hell is horrible. That's why Jesus came. Almighty God wasn't willing for anyone to perish. So He set aside His glory and became a man and entered this world as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He preached the good news to the people and then allowed Himself to be nailed to a cross and executed for our sins. And all He asks of you is for you to trust Him. 
He can get you out of the mess you're in today. And you can avoid the condemnation of hell forever. If you just believe. Because that's what it takes. There's no other way. Jesus said, nobody is going to make it to heaven, get to the Father, except they come through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as he told Nicodemus, there's only one way you can be born again. And that is believe. Would you believe him today? Would you receive him as Lord of your life? And will you commit your future to loving him and serving him? I'm going to ask that you bow your head and close your eyes. I realize that in a crowd of this size today, there could be someone here today who has never been saved. You've never invited Jesus into your heart. But today, you've heard the truth of the gospel. And you realize that you are lost, that you are under God's condemnation. You've also realized that Jesus loves you. He loved you so much that He died on the cross to save you. And today, He's calling you. Do you hear Him? It's that whisper that you hear in your heart. He's calling you to be saved. If you would like to invite Jesus into your heart, you can do that this morning. Just, just simply by believing and praying a very short prayer to Him. Receiving Him as Savior and confessing your sins and inviting Him into your heart. If you'd like to do that, I invite you to come to the altar in just a moment. We'll help you do that. It could be that you're here today and at one time in your life you received Jesus, but you've grown apart and away from Him. You've allowed other things into your life and there's sin that's separating you from Jesus today. Friend, you need to come and get things right with Him. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. So, would you do that today? Then for the rest of us, I, I tell you, I, as I prepared this sermon this past week, I, I realized the importance and the necessity for me to be a witness for Jesus. I, I rub shoulders with people every day. There are people who live on my street that are lost and they're without hope and without Jesus. And if they died today, they would go to hell. And here's the deal. If anybody's going to tell them about the good news, it's got to be me. God put me in this world, at this place, in this city, and on my street to witness to the people who are around me. I have people in my family who are without hope and without Christ. And if they're going to hear the good news, I need to be the one who tells them. So I invite you today to come to the altar and intercede for lost loved ones and friends and neighbors. And ask God to help you be a witness to them. Dear Lord Jesus, hear our prayers today and answer them. For those who need to use this time in prayer to you and come to the altar and pray, Lord, give them the freedom to step in.